0: This morning, in light of that, and we pray all this in the mighty name of Jesus, Amen. You guys may be seated. All right. If you have a copy of God's Word, turn with me to the book of First Timothy, First Timothy chapter three, verses fourteen through sixteen. We've we've been working through this letter uh, over the last couple of months. Uh, This is a letter written to a young pastor named Timothy, written by a man named the Apostle Paul. And uh, if you're new to church life, Paul, an apostle means sent one. Uh, Paul as an apostle was someone who was a witness to Christ after he was crucified and he was bodily risen from the dead. Uh, Paul was a, a witness to Christ in his resurrected body. And he was sent by Christ to share the gospel to the Gentiles, and he he was to help establish the church. And so as Paul was fulfilling his ministry, he met Timothy. And and when they met, it was obvious and natural that Timothy would come under the mentorship of Paul. Uh, Timothy was gifted for ministry. There was was confirmation from other believers about his calling to preach the word. and, And there was evidence of the Holy Spirit in his life. And so Paul brought Timothy under his wing and and eventually commissioned him to be the pastor at Ephesus, where Timothy remained and and was eventually martyred for his faith. Um, But it was while Timothy was pastoring at Ephesus that Paul wrote this letter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to encourage and instruct Timothy. Paul also expected this letter would be read in the context of the congregation, And so this was for their edification as well. And as this word has been preserved and kept pure in all ages, this is for us as well. So we've been working through it line by line, verse by verse, and we find ourselves at the end of chapter 3. For the first few chapters, Paul's been giving instructions about how the church is to function, uh, specifically as it relates to the public gathering of the church on the Lord's Day. Paul's concerned about the spiritual condition of the church as it relates to the application of their faith. In our text this morning in verse 15, uh, Paul, he writes, uh, he says that he writes this so that one may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. So if we're to say it in a word, Paul's concerned with godliness in the church. Godliness is one of the most frequently used words in this letter, and it's in our text this morning. Uh, one commentator defined godliness as someone 's inner response to the things of God which show itself in godly piety or reverence, so Paul is concerned with the church living in light of the redemption that Christ accomplished when he died on the cross, and that they would continue to live in, in growing in an increasing obedience to Christ, that they would be growing in active, reverent, Holy Spirit-empowered obedience to all that God has commanded. Paul's concerned with godliness permeating the church. So this morning, as Paul is kind of stepping back to reflect upon his reason for writing the letter, uh, the church pursuing godliness, I I want us in our application to reflect upon our own pursuit of godliness in our church. I want to focus our application of the text, and it's the title of our sermon this morning. Are we a godly church? And we're going to look at three aspects of our lives in the context of the church that will help us answer this question. The first is what we do. Second is who we are. And third is what we confess. So as, as we consider, are we a godly church? Are we pursuing godliness? We're going to consider what we do, who we are, and what we confess. So let's consider these things and ask the Lord to help us evaluate our own lives and the life of this church. So let's read 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. The Apostle Paul writes this, I hope to come to you soon. But I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we, we come before you this morning and we're so grateful uh, that you have spoken to us in your word. God, in, in eternity past, you decided to bring about this great plan of redemption and you sent the word in flesh, Christ Jesus, to die on the cross for our sins so that we might have eternal life in him. And Lord, we are so grateful. Uh, and Lord, I pray as we open your word this morning that you would help us to see Christ more clearly, that you would help us to turn from sin, to turn to him, and to pursue a great uh, active obedience to your commands. And Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, first, let's consider this morning what we do. Looking at verse 14 in the first half of 15, Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. So here, as we've just discussed, Paul is giving his purpose for writing to Timothy about how he himself, how Timothy and subsequently the church are to conduct themselves, specifically as it relates to the public assembly of the church. Now, Paul would have given the same message if he had been with them in person, but due to the uncertainty of his plans, he, he might delay. In uh, the urgency of this message, he, he hopes to come to them soon. He writes down these instructions and sends them to Timothy. Let's look at Paul's instructions. He says, I write these things to you. Let's look at these things for a moment. We're, we're going to kind of flip through this letter and do a bit of an overview. Uh, and, and as we work through this letter each and every week, uh, I'd encourage you to read through it. Regularly, just to let the word of God wash over you, uh, and, and that it would really nourish your soul as we continue through it. But we see these instructions that Paul's giving are clear and explicit. And uh, turn with me to chapter one. Paul, the first instructions that Paul gives to Timothy relate to the defense of sound doctrine. Timothy, is the pastor of the church, is responsible before God for teaching sound doctrine and rebuking those who contradict it. Look at verses 3 and 4. Paul says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. And in Ephesus, there were these false teachers that were coming to gather with the church who had wandered away from the truth. And Timothy is to deal with them, to protect the rest of the church from them and guard the deposit of truth that was entrusted to him. So week in and week out, he is to pay attention to the teaching that's coming from the pulpit and to address the false teaching that arises within the congregation. He must do this so that the gospel would go forth with clarity. And Paul even reinforces this throughout the letter. Let's turn to chapter 4 for a second, verse 11 through 13. Paul says this He says, Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct, in love and faith and purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. The preaching of the word of God is to be the utmost importance in the church and the central focus of Timothy's ministry. Second, we see the priority of prayer. Turn with me to chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. Paul says this, he says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, Godly and dignified in every way. The church is to be committed to prayer, recognizing that God is sovereign and that he is sovereign over salvation. He's in control of all things. He's the one who saves and his, his salvation is expansive to all kinds of people. So prayer and the preaching of the word are to stand front and center in the public worship of God and everything else is to be done with non-distracting excellence. Because the church is to be ordered. Right? So there's order in the church, which we saw over the last few weeks. We looked at chapters 2 and 3. Paul gives instructions for both men and women. And he gives instructions for elders and deacons, as we studied over the last two weeks. But you may be thinking, and what comes to my mind when I look at these things that Paul is writing, is that it's a pretty short list compared to all the things that a church does. There's a lot of things that the church does that are not written in this letter. There's a lot of things that Paul could say that he didn't say. Right? He doesn't talk about the building. He doesn't talk about whether there are pews or chairs. He doesn't talk about what instruments are being played. He gives instruction on preaching, prayer, and order. Why is that? Why did, why did he say these things instead of those things? Well, it brings us back to the reason Paul's writing this letter. Right? He writes these things so that the church would know how one ought to behave in the household of God. One one commentator rephrases Paul's reasoning like this. He says that Paul is writing so that the church would know what kind of behavior befits a member of God's household. Right, so this is not a church manual. This is not just a list of do's and don'ts. This is a list of expectations, a list of top priorities. Paul's defining what the church must do. And not only that, Paul's concerned with expectations for how these things are being done, the manner by which they're being done. We see this in Paul's initial charge to Timothy in chapter 1, verse 5. Paul says, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Paul is after the condition of the heart. We even see this in Paul's instructions for order in the church. Right? For men and women, men are to take up their God-given roles in the public assembly by serving through leading in prayer as an outward expression of what Christ has done in their hearts. They're to lift holy hands without anger or quarreling. And women are to come to corporate worship in modest dress, not concerning themselves with outward appearances, but pursuing modesty as a reflection of what Christ has done in their hearts. Right? Paul says what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. So in his instructions to deacons and elders, Paul, Paul's primary focus concerns the character qualities of those leading in the church. Right? We saw that over the last couple of weeks. Paul understands that what we do is a reflection of what is in our hearts. Our our behavior is evidence of our priorities and the condition of our hearts. His goal is to teach the church what God's expectations are for what they must do and the way it must be done. So after we examine these things, this is what we can conclude. When it comes to the corporate gathering of the church... When it comes to what we must do, God has spoken clearly and sufficiently about what the church must do. God has spoken clearly and sufficiently about what the church must do. And God has spoken clearly and sufficiently to determine the kind of behavior that is acceptable or unacceptable in his church. What is sinful behavior and what is not. So, so what this means is that the public worship of God, it, it's, it's not a place to experiment. What's acceptable worship to God is not a guessing game. Now certainly creativity is acceptable as we decide how to organize and prepare our services, but, but it must rest within and be regulated by the scriptures. Right? We must do what scripture says, nothing more, nothing less, keeping the main things, the main things. So as we're asking ourselves this overarching question, are we a godly church, we've we got to ask two follow-up questions. Are we doing what we must do? Uh, one, one pastor uh, said, said, am I doing all that I can do is the wrong question. Jesus did not do all that he could do. The right question is, am I doing what I must do? Right? Jesus did the will of his heavenly father. For leaders in the church, that means we have to limit ourselves in our decisions to what is explicitly commanded. If our justification for doing something is, well, it doesn't say we can't do it, therefore we can do it, that's evidence you're not focused on what we must do. There's this gross dissatisfaction with the clearly revealed commands of Scripture and a refusal to pursue obedience to God's clearly revealed word, which we can never fully accomplish. And for the congregation, we must understand that as members of the church, that doing what we must do, well, that, that begins by being present for corporate worship on the Lord's Day. Right? You can't do what God commands unless you're physically here to do it. Right? Is the preaching of God's word and corporate prayer, is that a must for you? Is it a necessary priority? And second... The second question, right? are we doing what we must do or are, and are we, doing, are we worshiping God in our hearts in the way God intends and commands it to be done? Right? Are you preparing your heart before coming into public worship? Right? Are you asking the Lord to search you and to find any grievous or sinful motivations within you as you approach Him? Are, are, there, are there these things that we do when we come into Sunday morning that are self-serving or are we coming to serve the Lord? Now, somebody might be listening to this, and you might be thinking, well, this all seems very narrow. The church is diverse, right? There are different ways of doing worship. Aren't you being a bit exclusive here? Aren't you stifling creativity? I have to prepare my heart to come before God? Well, what happened to come as you are? Well, there's a couple of different ways that we could answer that. And certainly, all are welcome to join us. In our corporate worship of the Lord. It doesn't matter who you are or what you have done. We want this to be a safe place for sinners, for sufferers to come and to worship our trying God. But to answer these objections, we need to look at the second aspect of the church that we are to consider, and that is who we are. Limiting what we do on the Lord's day to the clearly revealed commands of Scripture is directly connected to and flows from who we are. We are the church, right? After Paul describes the purpose of his letter, he heads upstream to expand upon the nature and the purpose of the church. Look with me in verse 15. He says, The household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Let's let's first address the nature of the church. Paul says, This is the household of God, which is the church of the living God. These words household and church, or or assembly in the original language, they only find their clear definition in the prepositional phrase that follows. So if Paul only said, I write these things so that one might know how to behave in the household or the assembly, we would immediately ask the question, which household or which assembly but Paul clarifies, right? He says, this is the household of God. This is the church of the living God. Who we are is defined by whose we are. The church is God's household. It's not our household. It's his house. Right? God's the one who saved us. God's our father who adopted us into his family as sons. He extended mercy and grace towards us. He he." purchased us through the blood of Christ and redeemed us from sin, right? It's through his life, his death, his resurrection that we can come into the family of God. We were once orphans, right? Without hope and without God in the world. But now by faith, all who come to him receive the inheritance of eternal life as co-heirs with Christ. God, God set his affections on us. He set Christ over us. In his church. Christ is our master. He's, he's our Lord. He's Lord over the household of God. And so we live in it as children under his rule. And good parents, well, they don't let their children do whatever they want. And, and we have a good father who cares for us. He knows what's best for us. And his instruction is perfect instruction that will grow us into maturity under the, his care, under his roof. But it's not just that. Right, Paul has more to say. He says this is the household of God. This is the church of the living God. Our, our triune God is a living God. He's the one true God. He's the one Paul describes in chapter 6, verse 16 of this letter. He says, The blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. He's the living God who is life immortal. He's the self-sufficient source and sustainer of life itself. And his infinite perfection is so magnificent he dwells in unapproachable light. This is describing the holiness of God. God is a holy God. He's set apart. He's above all things. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords and it's because of who he is that he is deserving of glory, adoration, reverence and praise. If we're in God's church and God is a holy God who deserves all of these things and more, anything less than perfect worship and obedience to God is rebellion against him and deserving of his wrath. This shows us how merciful God is. He's patient with us. He's constantly with us in our constant dissatisfaction with his ordinary means of grace. Right? It's, a, it's a miracle he has not consumed us in fire. There's, there's a, a passage that I would encourage you to read, um, Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. Um, I would, let's go ahead and actually turn there. Um, turn with me to Leviticus chapter 10 verses 1 through 4, and I just want to read that text for us to show us how holy our God is. Leviticus chapter 10, there's two priests that are Uh, offering unacceptable worship before the Lord. Moses writes this, he says, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it, and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Let's stop there. We see the holiness of God on display in the, the, the setting of worship. Right, Our our God is a holy God. And, and this is what the Apostle Peter uh, describes uh, in First Peter chapter 1. Like the right response to the holiness of God and the fact that this is God's house is that we must do exactly and exclusively what he has commanded. 1 Peter 1, verses 13 through 16 say this. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children... Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. How we conduct ourselves in church, especially as we gather on the Lord's days, is either a reflection of our holy God who calls us to be holy, or it is a visible contradiction. An ungodly church gives us evidence of the deceitfulness of sin and our tendency to rebel against God. Right, because the church we can forget that this is God's church, like the nation of Israel without Christ as their prophet, priest, and king will do what is right in our own eyes and come under the judgment and discipline of God. Now, what we do is connected to who we are in our nature, and and but it's also connected to our purpose. Paul says you can turn back to First Timothy. Paul says, this is the house of God, this is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Right, just as a pillar and buttress are structures that uphold a building, the church is the structure that God has placed on the earth to uphold his truth. The church doesn't determine what the truth is, the, the, the word of God is truth, and Christ is the truth revealed in the flesh. Right? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But the church proclaims and lives according to the truth. We, we herald the truth of the gospel as Christ's ambassadors on this earth. So as we examine the nature and the purpose of the church, I, I want us to understand that God defines us and he determines what we do. We live in a culture where we are consumed with the self, and specifically how we personally identify. What feels right is right. And that drives us in this country, how we, how to, how we live. It drives how we identify. If it feels good in the moment, then it must be good to do it now. If, I, if this is how I feel, then this must be who I am. Right? That's idolatry, that's self-worship, that's, that's a religion that leads nations and churches into all kinds of ungodliness, and it's unacceptable worship in the household of God. So the a- application for us as we consider, are we a godly church? Let's ask ourselves this follow-up question. What defines us? Is what we do and the way we do it determined by how we feel, or is it who we are in Christ? But if you identify as a Christian, if you confess to be a Christian, does your participation in corporate worship really reflect this? Why are you here this morning? Right? Is it because of your love and adoration for the God that saved you, or is it because you had to come, or it was convenient? Right? This is not to downplay our confession, although there are many people who say that they are Christians, and they go to church, but they're not truly converted. But what we say has, has a lot to do about what we believe as well. It's a reflection on what is in our hearts. Right? Christ said during his earthly ministry, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So lastly, in asking this question, are we a godly church? We have to consider what we confess. So after reflecting upon the purpose and nature of the church, Paul writes down a confession. This is most likely a, a creed or a part of a creed that was recited in the early church. Paul writes this. He says, "Great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory." I'm just going to make a couple observations about this and then we're going to spend the rest of our time unpacking this creed. But Paul Paul has Christ at the center of this confession. He, he he talks about the mystery of godliness. And the, the word mystery throughout his New Testament letters are, are mainly referring to Christ or the revelation of Christ. But here, this is the only time he refers to the mystery of godliness. And we know, as I mentioned earlier, that godliness refers to reverence or piety toward God. And Paul uses it throughout this letter in reference to those in the church. And so... It, it, on first pass, it might be easy to think, uh, is this what, is what he's saying? Is he saying, great indeed, we confess, is a godly church? I don't, I don't think so. But that's the temptation, right? When God blesses the church with godliness and the church is growing and, and, and there's lots of things happening, the spirit is working, pride can so easily creep in and we can begin to think it's, there's something about us that makes us great. All right, look at our church. Look how many baptisms we've had. Look how many people are coming. Look how many lives are being changed. Like, those are good things. But we can conclude that there's something about us that caused this. Right, we can say, great indeed is the church. But this is, this is not the case. Paul is praising God and giving glory to Christ. But the only reason we're here is because of Christ. Godliness is a gift of God's sovereign Grace, a godly church, exists only because of what Christ has done. We were dead in our sins, but he raised us to life by the power of his Spirit. Right? He is the one working in us and through us. Right? This is why after thinking about the mystery of godliness, he's reflecting on the church. It leads him to think about Christ. Right? Although his name's not mentioned, Christ is the, is the subject of the creed that follows, he says it's Christ was manifested in the flesh. Christ was vindicated by the Spirit. Christ was seen by angels. Christ was proclaimed among the nations. Christ was believed upon in the world. And Christ was taken up in glory. Let's, let's just spend some time meditating on the glory of Christ in this confession. Christ, he was manifested in the flesh. Th- that word manifested means to be revealed or to appear. It's a verb in the passive voice. It's, it's used throughout the New Testament in that particular verb form in two ways. It's used to describe the incarnation of Christ and it's used to describe the appearance of Christ to his disciples in his resurrected body. So I, I don't know which one this confession is referring to, but I think the emphasis here is on Jesus being revealed in the flesh in, in human form. This is talking about the humility of Christ. Almighty God condescended to us in the humble form of a man. The second person of the Trinity came as a baby so that he could serve us who despised and rejected him by saving us from ourselves. Second, we see Christ was vindicated by the Spirit. This is a much more difficult phrase to interpret. Uh, But the word vindicated as other translations say, justified means to show to, or to be regarded as righteous. We see this same verb in the same form used in James as he teaches that the works of righteousness are evidence of our justification. And so in James chapter 2, verse 21, James says this. He says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. So, Abraham's works show us that he was vindicated before God. But now we have a problem because our text doesn't say vindicated by works, it says vindicated by the Spirit. Christ was vindicated by the Spirit. Uh, Other translations say in spirit, so, vindicated in the Spirit. So, I don't know exactly what this means, but but one pastor friend of mine made the connection like this. He said, Abraham was not justified by his own works, but his works proved his faith in the one person whose works earned justification for us Christ. And we know that Christ is the only one whose works earned our justification, because he is the only person to be bodily and eternally resurrected from the dead. Who raised Christ Jesus from the dead? The Spirit of God. Right? The spirit that raised Christ from the dead vindicated or proved Christ's righteousness. This is pointing us to the righteousness of Christ. Right? Sin and death had no hold on him. He crushed the head of the serpent. He defeated sin and death. And he grants us his righteousness, which he earned unto eternal life by his spirit. Romans eight eleven. 11. Right? The same spirit that Christ raised Jesus from the dead will give life to our mortal bodies. Through his spirit in us we stand perfectly justified for all eternity before the Father. Third, we see Christ was seen by angels. This, this phrase is also difficult to interpret. Uh, one commentator began by saying, this is puzzling. Um, there, there were angels who were who appeared throughout Christ's earthly ministry from his incarnation uh, to his resurrection. But the verb form of the word seen is most mostly used throughout the New Testament, referring to Christ appearing in his resurrected body. But this this creed is not talking about Christ appearing to us. It's talking about Christ appearing to the angels, and I think specifically as it relates to him ascending to the throne of God, where the the angels are worshiping around the throne of God. This is talking about the exaltation of Christ. Because of what Christ has done on the cross, God has in Philippians 2.9, it says, Therefore, highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Fourth, we see Christ was proclaimed among the nations. And we're stepping into a little bit clearer water now. And the word proclaimed refers to preaching, and, and nations refers to the Gentiles. This is, this is talking about the gospel, the message of all that all who come to Christ will be saved through repentance and faith in him. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation can be reconciled to God. It's because of what Christ did on the cross that both Jews and Gentiles can come into his presence. And and here we see the approachability of Christ. All who come to him, he will never cast out. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, you can come to him and there's a place for you in his kingdom. Fifth, we see Christ was believed on in the world. Christ, who was proclaimed to the world, was believed upon in the world. This inclusive, far-reaching, non-discriminatory gospel is successful. Christ really died on the cross for our sins, and people really come to saving faith in him. They're really free, and they really receive eternal life. This is referring to the triumph of Christ. Christ is building his church, and he will continue to build his church until every single one of those whom he has called will enter into his kingdom. Christ was exalted so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, Philippians 2.10. And Christ was taken up in glory. The words taken up also refers to Christ's ascension. It always refers to Christ's ascension. After completing his descent to the earth to die on the cross, after descending under the earth to crush the gates of hell and to free the souls in captivity, he was raised from the dead and ascended into heaven to sit down at the right hand of the Father, where he is ruling and reigning over all things. This is referring to the glory of Christ. He sits in the throne room of heaven, ruling and reigning, and he will rule until every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, this confession, this is a declaration of the greatness, the glory, the victory, and the triumph of Christ expressed in his humiliation and his exaltation. And it points us to the only reason that godliness can come into our lives, into our church. So, here's the application In asking, are we a godly church? Are we giving all the glory to Christ? Right, is everything that we say, from the call to worship to the benediction, is it pointing you, is it directing you, is it urging you and calling you to Christ? Right, is all that we are wrapped up in the reality of who Christ is? Is who he is becoming who we are? Right, is all that we do a reflection of the glorious work that God has done for us in Christ? And if it's not, stop doing it, get rid of it, throw it away, turn it off. And if we want to be a godly church, it has to be all about Christ. All right, I'm so grateful for this church and all the godly men and women. I'm so grateful that God has worked uh, in, in all of your hearts in so many ways. And I'm thankful for what he's doing through you in this church. And I pray that God would continue to grow us in godliness. So let's go to the, the Lord in prayer, asking him to be, for us to be a godly church. Lord, we thank you for this morning. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for Christ who came and died. And Lord, we thank you for the gospel that is unendingly beautiful. Uh, Lord, we can never plumb the depths of the truth of your word. Uh, Lord, we can always come to it. It is uh, sufficient. It is inerrant. It is infallible. It is authoritative. It is uh, powerful. powerful. And God, it is all because of Christ that we can walk in godliness in light of it. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us by your Spirit to do that. Lord, we love you. We thank you. In Jesus. Name.